Uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to turn our attention to your word. Have mercy on us now and help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a scene at the end of a movie called Apocalypse Now. I don't know if you've seen it. And at the end of Apocalypse Now, after three hours of just stuff that you would turn your head up, at the end of this movie, these four words are spoken. The horror. The horror. That's the end of the movie. I want to tell you, I have spent a week looking at these chapters and uh, I'm really thankful that Russell read what he did today and I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for your indulgence in sitting through it. Uh, I want you to know that this part of the Bible for me is just a complete horror story. It's a terrible part of God's word. Uh, I want us to look at it today to see what we can learn. Uh, it's very easy. I think at this point you're thinking, why did I come to church today? What, what good thing can come from this part of God's word? And we could be thinking to ourselves, actually the Bible would be greatly improved if this set of chapters in Kings were simply ripped out. Uh, even if you just printed a couple of Psalms a few more times in there to make the Bible the same thickness, uh, no one would miss these chapters And surely we could just get on with our lives without this terrible, terrible reading that we've had to sit through. What what I want to see if we can do today is to redeem what we've just heard in some way for God. Uh, He, in his wisdom, has this in in the Bible. I certainly didn't write it, and I'm not convinced that I would have put it in. However, God was sure that it was good and useful, and I want us to see something that we can get from this word. So that's why I prayed that God would be merciful on you and me and let's see if we might be able to find that. I'm not sure how closely you were listening, but from chapter 7 to the end of, uh, of where we are today in, in uh, chapter 16, uh, there are, uh, I counted, six kings assassinated. Did, did you notice that? Uh, they bump one off and then the next one comes along and he gets bumped off. Now, Did you see how short some of those reigns got? I'm not sure if you could tell that. But uh, once they get down from sort of 40 years and you see one that goes for two years and then you see one that goes for six months and I'm not sure if you caught the one that went for one month. Now, did you notice how many names were up in the north? Did you see that? All those, whether you could read them at the back or not, I'm sure you couldn't. Bless your hearts for for looking at it. But up up the top, you could see these names coming up. How many names did you see down the bottom in the kingdom of Judah? Very few. There are only three at the end of all of that. Uh, It's extraordinary to me that the grappling for power, particularly the despicable assassination of kings, doesn't work out well, does it? It doesn't work out well. So I've got a sign up here, stay back, unstable ground. Uh, This desire to deal treacherously feeds on itself. It makes the whole kingdom unstable and it leads to six kings being assassinated, innumerable relatives and supporters and, as I'm sure you've all heard, terrible what we would call today collateral damage on the ordinary folks of the land. I know you heard that, didn't you? It's appalling how this sinful grappling for power works itself out in the nation of Israel to the north. Stay back, unstable ground, 
is a description of this whole country over this period. It's despicable and appalling. So I've got some questions for us to think about today. Uh, As we look at this reading, I think we need to ask some very serious questions about the nature of things that if we don't understand them clearly will lead us to just walk away shaking our heads and go, well, that's the reason that you might never pick up the Bible again. But I want you to think carefully. Why are these things here? And what is it that God wants us to know? The first question is, so how serious is sin anyway? How much of a big deal? How much of a big deal is sin? See, I think it's quite possible for us to think sin is, uh, is something that's used to sell ice cream. Isn't it? You know, all these words of envy and jealousy and desire and whatever and lust even are used to sell ice cream these days. Uh, And I think we get to the point of excusing it as something that's not really that much of a big deal. If we all just relaxed a little bit more and forgot about our consciences, we would actually be in a much better place with a lot less stress if people just let the whole sin thing go. So is sin a big deal? I think we have to ask that question as we look at this part of God's word. I'm going to suggest to you it's quite a big deal. And I want to show you an area particularly uh, where it starts off looking terrible. It's to do with children. And uh, I want you to have a look with me at 2 Kings chapter 16. So 2 2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, If you've got the page there, you can call it out. 2 Kings chapter 16. 380. And uh, I just want to read to you uh, a couple of of verses here. So 2 Kings chapter 16. I'm going to read for you uh, about, uh, about this, king, uh, this king here. So uh, verse 2, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike his father David, he did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord Lord God had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places and on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Now, people here today, we love kids, don't we? In fact, you could argue something about our society, maybe, that we've tipped the priority towards children. Now, this is not a time for that sermon because these guys are so far at the other end of this spectrum that we don't need to hear that word today. But we love and value and cherish children. Here's a society and a religion that seeks to win God's favour, to twist the arm of the divine, not the Lord God, but another God called Baal, by sacrificing their children in the fire. Now, I would imagine... In this room, there would not be anyone here who would not agree that that is profoundly evil. It's not not just mildly unsettling. It's profoundly evil. It's evil in a way that you and I get at a gut level. You might even, you know, take a gasp as you hear about it. It's appalling beyond all comprehension. Is this sin serious? The answer to that has to be yes. And no God who would claim to be good in any way, shape or form could let that go. Well, what about things a little bit more in our time? What about the rise of ISIS in Syria and northern Iraq? 
It's a group of people, and I'm not even going to speak about the religious motivation behind it, who have done truly appalling things. Uh, Ethnic cleansing, systematically wiping out individuals of a particular racial background, targeting them and killing them systematically. And we won't talk about the things that they've done to women because we're in church, but it's appalling. Slavery, abduction, murder. Now, when we look up the word evil, this has to be in that category, doesn't it? Is this sin serious? Any good God must deal with that. And you and I would long for that, wouldn't we? Do something about that. Do something about that God. I read a little bit in the paper the other day. I'm still struggling with this number. Uh, There's a little snippet in the paper. Here's the number. How many people do you think are slaves today? Well, the, the paper said 38 million. 38 million people do not have the freedom to choose their place of residence, to earn money. They are beaten and kept and sold as goods and chattels. 38 million people, from boys to men and women, kept as goods of other people. That is a profound evil in our world. The sins of the people who run these organisations, who oversee these brick-making factories where people spend their entire adult lives working 15-hour days, getting beaten being fed hardly at all. Is that evil? The answer to that has to be yes. Profoundly evil. But you know what? We have clarity on that in a way that I don't think we have when it comes to us. We see sin and evil elsewhere so readily. And the Bible says that you and I were made as creatures of the divine God, that we owe him our very breath today. And you and I have chosen to sell God out and to run lives our own way. We have said to him, you have no hold on me. I run my life. I call the shots here. And it's not just mildly rude. It's prideful rebellion against the God who owns us and made us for his glory. When we think about our own sin, I think we too easily excuse it. I too easily excuse it. And we need to see it far more for what it is truly evil sin and rebellion. It resides here, not just out there, and not just in the terrible pages of two kings. How serious is sin? It's a deadly serious business. Sin is a deadly serious business. So the question we then need to ask as we come to a passage like this is, how serious is God about sin? Is it mildly frustrating for him? A blip on the radar? Something that upsets him a bit? He wishes it could be better. How does God, the righteous judge, how does he feel about sin? I'm going to read you a bit here. If you'd like to open it up with me, it's in 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 7 to 10. Now, I read this bit and I went, what? This is just... What's going on? This is God commissioning a guy called Jehu, okay? He's putting him in charge of something that he wants. 
He wants him to do. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 9. We're reading verses 7 to 10. Uh, a prophet basically comes from God and, uh, and has a message for him. Pick it up in verse 7. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, who was the king of Israel. And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of land, uh, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. Yeah, what are we doing here? What are we seeing? What, what on earth is that about? Well, Ahab had systematically killed the prophets of God. Because he was worshipping Baal, this other god, he had gone throughout Israel and killed all the people who named God as their Lord. And God didn't let it go. He didn't let it go. And in fact, what we're supposed to learn is that God treats sin very seriously and he won't let anyone get away with it. I was reading in one of my commentaries, uh, a guy was saying that um, he was reading this part of the Bible to his kids. Uh, I think his kids were a bit older than my kids, perhaps. Anyway, at, uh, at one point, uh, Jezebel, who's this evil queen, uh, gets pushed out a window. And uh, at the end of it, he said this guy normally prayed with his kids at the end and got his kids to pray something that they learnt from the Bible. So he finishes that part of the Bible and they go to prayer. Kid said, thank you, God, that Jezebel died. Amen. Now we go, but it's a poor, but what? what they saw clearly was she was evil and God brought justice. I think I'm so light on sin, I want everybody to get off. That, that's kind of my thing. But she was a profoundly evil person. She had systematically killed the Lord's and God brought her to justice. Somewhere we're supposed to be saying it's good that justice is done. Now, if ISIS was stopped tomorrow, do you think we would want the leaders of that organisation to be brought to justice? It would be good that justice would be done. In this case, God takes sin very seriously and you and I need to too. Amidst all of that carnage, how faithful is God to his promises? Like, has God gone on vacation? Has he kind of checked his niceness at the door or something? And these, these are just some sort of nightmare. Well, I want you to see God is still faithful to his promises in the midst of this terrible situation. Uh, in, uh, in 2 Kings 8, uh, verses 16 to 19, uh, we see God being merciful. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 8 and verses 16 to 19. In the fifth year of Joram, by the way, they all have J's in their names. It's absolutely, I had to write them all down because I'm just going, who and who? And two of the sons have the same names and two kings of Israel have the same names. It's very, very confusing. But here we are. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. So Judah, this is King David's side of the split kingdom. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, 
as the house of Ahab have done, for he married Ahab, a daughter of Ahab. Bad move. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Listen to this. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. Can I hear a little quiet cheer? Yay. Yay. God is faithful to his promise. You are being evil, but my promise trumps your evil. I will show restraint here. I will be true to my word. And so you have this extraordinary story uh, in 2 Kings chapter 11, where uh, Jehu, this crazy man up north, kills the current king of Israel, kills the king of Judah. The king of Judah's mum goes, oh, my son's dead. I will go about killing everyone else who might be an heir so that I can be queen of Judah, right? So she goes about killing everyone who's an heir of the king of Judah. David's, David's line, right? So she starts killing them, all of them. Now, if she succeeds, what happens to the promise? It's gone. Literally, Jesus can't be a descendant of David if this woman succeeds. So the whole plan of God, the whole promise of God to hang on, you will have a king who will reign on your throne forever. That promise of God is in the balance right here. So what happens? A nurse takes one of the kids and runs away and hides him in an inner room in the temple. And they live there for six years while this terrible queen reigns in Judah. And in the sixth year, some very, very faithful people who are still hanging on to God's promise say, hey, we're going to bring the king out now. And on the steps of the temple, they pull a crown out, put it on his head and go, long live the king, long live the king. Everyone in Jerusalem goes, what's going on here? They come up and this wretched lady, this queen, comes out and she goes, treason, treason. At which point everyone figures out what actual treason has taken place and she's killed. And the promise of God is fulfilled. One of David's descendants does remain on his throne. How faithful is God to his promise? Incredibly faithful. Who is the agent of God's faithfulness? It's a nurse. It's someone that you might never hear about, but who was brave, who got God's promise, who had compassion, and God uses this beautiful woman to save his promise. That's got to be a good message, doesn't it? How faithful is God to his promise? Well, he's very faithful. I don't know if you noticed this. Did you see my little bits coming in and going at the top of the slide when when Russell was doing that epic reading? I don't know if you noticed, but uh, if we have a look at 2 Kings 15, 29... Just something tiny happens here that you kind of would pass over and you'd think, oh, that's not very much of a big deal. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. Now, God gave them the promised land. You're familiar with that? A land flowing with milk and honey. Brilliant. And he said to them, you will keep that land forever as long as you do what? You obey my commands. As long as you continue to honour me as God, you will keep that land forever. Did they do that? Okay, you've been listening enough today. Even if you heard none of the rest of the Old Testament, one chapter in two kings would assure you that they didn't do it. Would that be right? They stuffed it up badly. It was a terrible mess. Well, God said you'll keep it forever unless you disobey me. Have a look what happens in two kings, chapter 15 and verse 29. In the time of Pekah, 
king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon, Abel-Beth-Maaka, Janoah, Kadesh, and Hazor. He also took Gilead and Galilee, including the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. Now that is one verse in a chapter of stuff that is far more memorable. But I'm telling you, that is the game changer. People who inherited the promised land lost it. They were taken from the promised land, just as God had said would happen if they weren't faithful. How faithful is God to his word? We see both sides. We see the beautiful side that we go, oh, thank you, God, which is the saving of this beautiful little baby, King Joash. And on the other side, we see God's faithfulness to his word, which is if you stuff up, guess what? I'll follow through and do what I said I would. I think this is a serious question, reading 2 Kings 15. Will God ask me to do his dirty work? Is that part of God's game plan today? No. No, he's not going to ask you to do his dirty work. I can't believe that Jehu is a tool in God's hand. You'll read it. We're reading, we're reading through two kings. Wow, guys, buckle your seatbelts, get into it. But as you read that, right, I think you'll be blown away that God can use him. Here's the thing. Will God expect us to do something like that, to carry out his judgment? The answer to that is no. What, why is that no? Well, here's why. Firstly, David's descendant has come. Who's David's great descendant? Jesus. Amen. That's good, isn't it? We heard the name of Jesus. We're in the Old Testament. We heard the name of Jesus. That's good. Yes, Jesus has come. He was born in Bethlehem, in David's royal town. It's pretty good, isn't it? David had a son, eventually, eventually, eventually. Jesus is David's great descendant. The descendant has come. That part of the promise has been kept. What else has been kept? Well, here's the thing. You and I don't need to be involved in God's judgment because judgment has been carried out on the cross. On the cross, our sins were laid on his perfect son. And Jesus dies the death we deserve to die. Judgment has come for the sins of the world on the cross. Praise God. Thirdly, the position of judge is taken. You and I are not to be the final judge and arbiter of where people are going. That judge is Jesus. How did God prove that Jesus will be the judge? Does anyone know? He raised him from the dead. You know that resurrection song that we sang before? The reason that's a great song is it tells us about our hope of resurrection. But here's the thing. By raising Jesus from the dead, God showed that he was the judge. Jesus is the judge who will judge the world. So the position of judge is taken. Do you need to be God's judge? No. Position's taken. That's good. Good to know, isn't it? Position is taken. All that's left is to let the world know that the judgment can be taken if you will take hold of the work of the son of David. You say, God, I give up. My rebellion is real. It deserves justice. But you have taken it away in Jesus. Help me to be found forgiven on that final day. What you and I need to do is help people get this message of new life. So what should we do? How do you apply 
the horror of two kings. Uh, has anyone done any investigation into their family tree? Hand up, anyone? Russell has, anything? Up the back, Christine, good. Uh, we had great joy. I haven't done it at all, but my mum and dad uh, have done work on us. And uh, the oldest stars that we can find in Australia were married in the church in Cobbity where Rob and Lisa are getting married. I'm so excited to take a wedding in that church. So that's very exciting for me. I'm, I'm delighted about that. Now, when you find your family tree, you find out all sorts of interesting things. I've got Ancestry.com up here. I'm, I'm sure there's all sorts of different ways you can do it. Uh, you start finding all these things that happened in your family. Maybe you've got a medical condition, yeah? What happens if you change... Why would you follow your family tree if you have a medical condition? See if it's hereditary. See if it runs through the line of your family, yeah? I want to show you that in the Bible, almost inevitably, there's some sort of hereditary passing that goes on. Have a look at this. In the Bible, there is the hereditary here of Judah the inheritance of Judah, which is King David. They're supposed to be kings like King David. So in uh, 2 Kings 14, uh, 1 to 4, we hear this, uh, which I read before. Uh, In the second year of uh, Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, uh, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoadan, and she was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. In everything, he followed the example of his father Joash. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. What should he have been like? The line, the hereditary, the thing that he should have inherited was to be like King David. On the other side, we have an evil example. This is the cancer in the line uh, of Israel. It says again and again and again that they were like Jeroboam, son of Nebat and King Ahab. Uh, So we see in the same chapter, chapter 14 and verses 23 to 24, uh, we hear this. Uh, No, not the right bit. Anyway, in here somewhere, it says, well done. Uh, It says, um, sorry about that. It says, uh, says that Jeroboam followed the way of his ancestor, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and did exactly the evil of his father. So you've got two family lines. You've got, supposed to be like King David, these guys who have a cancer in their line to be like Jeroboam. I want to suggest to you, here's application time. I want to suggest to you, if you've got little munchkins, if you've got bigger ones, I want you to be legacy makers. Make a legacy in your family. We will be a family who will follow the living God. We will be a family who will follow the living God. Our family. Our family will follow the living God. And if you are blessed to have Christian parents, continue the legacy. We will be legacy makers in our family. I want to say to you as well, if you've had a family where people have sinned grievously, where there is profound evil in your family, I want you to know through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be legacy breakers. Legacy breakers. You do not have to inherit the legacy of your own family. Start a holy, godly line in your family tree. We will stand for the Lord. 
we will stand for the Lord. Be legacy makers, be legacy breakers. Be a family that stands for the Lord and that passes it on beautifully to our children. This is a shot of me. I think I've used it before down in Wollongong. We were waiting for the uh, stack to be blown up and fall over. We waited and we waited. And school kids came and stood on the beach and school kids went back to school again. And adults were standing there and it got hot and they went home. Here's the thing. Waiting when you don't know exactly when it's going to happen is tiring and you can give up. I think while you and I wait for the justice that Jesus' return will bring in this land and in this nation and in this world, while we're waiting for God's justice, we can get tired. We can think evil will win, that it has won, that we're defeated. I want us to be people who will be patient as we wait for God's justice. No one will get away scot-free. Not slave drivers in India, not ISIS in Iraq, not you and I who haven't given our lives to the Lord Jesus. Be patient as you wait for God's justice. Fourthly, GL wants to be people who would pray because I don't know anyone personally that I want to see God's justice. I want them to find his mercy and I hope you do too. We have these little cards. We pray for our friends, our neighbours, a family member and someone we're yet to meet. We pray and ask that God would have mercy on them, that they might find new life in him. I try and pray daily. I don't do it every day. I pray most days for my neighbours. And I'm seeing little shoots coming up in the ground. I want us to be a prayerful people. If you believe that sin is serious, that God will judge those who aren't right with him, that he will bring justice. Man, don't we want those around us to find mercy and forgiveness? Yes, we do. So let us pray as we wait patiently for God's justice. And can I say very, very easily, let's invite people to be along, coming along. Be praying and giving the message of new life in Jesus. We've got a kids uh, celebration coming up on the 7th of December. You know what? It's just going to be fun. Invite someone who has some tiny munchkins to come along. Even if the munchkins don't enjoy it, it's a great excuse to get the parents in the church, yeah? Invite someone to come along. The other one, apparently there's a carols happening. Have you heard that in Oran Park? I'm not sure. You heard that? Um, I would love you to be inviting people to come along. Oh, can I say this is a bonus piece of information while I remember? Um, Harrington Park's carols are the week before. Why do I tell you that? I want you guys to enjoy a carols event. So if you need to go and enjoy one, go and enjoy Harrington Parks. You're going to be working like crazy at the Oran Park Anglican... Okay, so our our carols are going to be working hard. If you want to go and sit at one and you want to invite some friends, invite them to go, that's fine. Can I tell you, you'll be working very hard at ours. There you go. Uh, Invite people to come along. Uh, I think we can be a church that has these first touches. What are we trying to do? We're trying to connect with people. We're trying to care for them communicate clearly about Jesus and lead them to commit to him as king. Where does all of that start? I think it starts first and foremost by believing that sin is serious, that God is serious about sin, that justice will be done, but mercy is found in the son of David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God and we stand in some ways just afraid uh, in light of this passage 
Father, we pray that you would take away our flippancy with regard to sin, particularly our own. Father God, have mercy on us. Forgive us for our damage, for the deceit, for the lust and the lies. Have mercy, Father, on us and make us prayerful ambassadors with a passion to give and live this message of new life in Jesus so that every home here may have new life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.